awkward transition. Hey, and awkward loudness. Welcome to week one of our kickoff. We are so excited about our brand new series called Gospel Centered Home. Uh, so for the month, let me just kind of clue you in in case you don't know, for the month of February, we are going to be joining 40 plus other churches from around Jefferson County uh, to focus in on and talk about family and marriage. And as I was preparing this first uh, session um, this week at home, um, two of our kids were fighting in the playroom. It doesn't matter which two. If you just put two kids together in the same room, they're going to fight. That's not very uncommon at our house. More than about five minutes in a room together, and the fight is on, and it's usually over something stupid. And then as I was trying to get my thoughts together for this marriage series and starting to try to outline the series and outline the sermon and hearing the bickering and the fighting and going on in the playroom, I, I just begin to wonder, is that, a, is that an accurate description of marriages? Like five minutes together under the same roof and we begin arguing and fighting and name calling. Is it possible that marriage is really nothing more than just one big get along shirt experiment? I put these, I found these online. Is that not a pretty good description of Marriage, you got the guy crying and the girl a little confused, yeah. I just wonder if that's what marriage in God's eyes really is. God takes two selfish, rebellious adults and he puts them under one roof and he expects it to work. And all we have to do is look around and we see that often it's not working, is it? In fact, statistics would say about half the time, marriage is not working. But do you know this? There has never been, this is a pretty bold statement, but I'll stand behind it. There has never been a marriage fail when marriage is done God's way. Marriage works 100% of the time when two people let God define what marriage is and then they live in obedience to how God describes marriage according to Scripture. So here's what I want to do for just a few minutes this morning. I want us to look at three things. I want us to define marriage. I want us to des describe marriage. And then I just want us to do it. I want it to be whatever, whatever is defined and whatever is described. I want us to leave here today in obedience to marriage according to God. Does that sound good? So let's just, let's just jump into this thing. Let's define it. If you've got your Bibles, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, chapters 1 and 2, we get a picture of the very first marriage. And in chapter 1, verse 27, you know this scripture well, it says this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Do we have it? All right. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It seems like just in that one verse, he's trying to get a point across. God created them. Male, female, God created them. And so here's the definition I want to give. Okay, this is not Webster's, this is Rick. But I think it's really Bible. Here's what the definition I want to give. Marriage is a holy covenant between God, the husband, and his one wife.
Marriage is a holy covenant. We don't know much about covenant anymore. It's a holy covenant between God, the husband, and his one wife. Now, I'm tempted to say that this is a biblical definition of marriage. But the truth is, there is no other definition of marriage. God created it. God designed it. So there's not Bible definition of marriage and then whatever other definite. There's only one definition of marriage. God's the designer of it. God created it this way, as we will see it more in just a moment in Genesis 2. So anything that looks different than one God, one man, one woman is not God's plan. Therefore, cannot be marriage as God designed it to be. Now, I understand, listen, outside of God, marriage just doesn't make sense. It doesn't. I've been pastoring now for 20 plus years. And I've married lots of people. I've married people that I probably shouldn't have married. And I'm getting a conviction in me as the older I get that when, I, when somebody comes to me and says, will you marry me, will you counsel us? And if they're not both believers, I just want to go, why? Why would you want to get married? Marriage is God's. And so why would you want to come into something not doing it the way God designed it to be? I'm feeling more convicted about that because, listen, culture has turned a holy covenant into a happy ceremony, an excuse to eat, drink, and be merry for at least a few hours before we start fighting. So it's no longer a holy covenant. It's a happy ceremony. It's become more of a relational contract rather than a covenant it's a contract that says this, I'm in this till I'm not. I am committed to this until it's too hard. I will love you until I don't feel like loving you anymore. Look around and tell me that's not the commitment being made between a husband and a wife these days. Till death do us part. What? You just got into a fight about a car payment and you're separated. What happened to the death part? Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. And listen, study the Old Testament, you'll find this. God takes covenants very seriously. When we stand before God in a, in a ceremony, it is Man, husband, one wife, and God, right? That is the covenant being made. One God, one man, one woman. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, look at this text. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. When you make a promise to God, don't delay in following through, for God takes no pleasure in fools. Keep all the promises you make to him. Verse 5. It is better to say nothing than to make a promise and not keep it. Translation, if you don't mean the, the, the vows that you're making to one another, it'd probably be best for you just to continue living in sin unmarried. Because standing before God, making a covenant of marriage with God, is serious. Look at Malachi, chapter 2. 
Here is another thing you do, God talking to the nation of Israel. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping, and groaning. They're, they're, they're broken. Why? Because he, God will pay no attention to their offerings. He doesn't accept their worship with pleasure. Verse, look at the next verse. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her. Though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. The nation of Israel is broken because they are trying to worship God and God is not receiving their worship. And God says it's because of the way you are relating to your spouse. Do you see that God is taking this covenant thing pretty seriously? Do you know in the New Testament it says that the prayers of a husband are hindered because of the way he treats his spouse, his wife? Marriage is not a joyful contract that happens to include God. Marriage is a holy covenant that happens to include joy. So let's dig a little deeper into this. In Genesis chapter 2, I just want to walk through some of these verses with you so we can see, begin to see the description that God gives us for marriage. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living Adam, right? And then look at this verse, verse 20. He gave names to all the livestock. So here's Adam's job. His job is to sit in the garden, and as God creates animals, he's like, all right, you're an elephant. You're a giraffe. And then he just gets really, really tired after a while. He goes, you're a fly. (laughs) You know, he he just runs out of names. He starts off so well, you shall be hippopotamus, you know? And then he ends with fly, (laughs) cat. You know, I don't know. So anyway, he's naming all of these animals. And notice this last line. Adam's noticing something. There's There's a male cow and there's a female cow. And they seem to have a relationship. There's a male hippopotamus and a female hippopotamus. And as Adam's naming all these animals, he's starting to notice notice that everyone else, all the other animals have a helper, but Adam is alone. There is no helper just right for him. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Can I get an amen, man? It's a good time for a marriage series. Nobody's happy in their marriage right now. It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So Adam is lonely. God sees the loneliness, and God says, I'm going to bless you with another. It's going to be your helper. It's going to be your sidekick. It's going to be glorious. Look at verse 18. Or, I'm sorry, verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while the man was... Uh, while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and he closed up the opening. One more verse. No? Yeah. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. One more, verse 23. At last, here's what Adam says. At last, The man exclaimed, Adam exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. In other words, you're going, whoa, she's mine. (laughs) Yes, thank you, God. She's beautiful. Woo. And he called her woman because she was taken 
from man. Now listen to God's description, because in the next two verses we see marriage. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Verse 25. Now the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Did you notice the three things there? That the man and the, and the woman, it says the man is to leave. This is an idea of separation from past commitments. This is a walking away from former relationships that might have had authority over you. You are leaving the, the husband and the wife or leaving mom and dad, no longer under the authority of their parents, but they are now being joined. The, the Bible, the King James word that I love is cleave, right? This is it's this idea of epoxy glue and putting some glue on the man, putting some glue on the woman, and God's putting them together and they're stuck. No longer two, but they're becoming one. No more we, no more me or you, but now it's we and us. And the goal of marriage is oneness. That is the goal. Oneness. And it's not just an Old Testament thing either, because I'll hear people say, well, I know God said one man and one woman, but it's not mentioned in the New Testament. Are you kidding me? Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, repeats it. He says, haven't you read the scriptures? They were, they were trying to trip him up about the topic of divorce. He goes, haven't you read the scriptures? They, they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. Verse 5 says this, and he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to the wife, and the two are united as one. That's Jesus. Paul in Ephesians repeats the exact same thing. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is not an old, outdated Old Testament thing. This is God's design. It is his definition. It is his description of marriage. That a man and a woman leave and they cleave and the two become one. So we leave, we cleave, and we become one with our spouse. Now what? Now what? What does it look like for us to have, or, or what must we do to have a gospel-centered marriage or home? Well, here at Journey, we define gospel-centeredness in three ways. Because we, we try to be a gospel-centered church, which makes sense, right? If we're going to be a gospel-centered church, we've got to have gospel-centered marriages and individuals and we describe it in three ways we're grounded in gospel identity we know who we are in christ right we are governed by one gospel rule we know what we are to do and we are growing in gospel maturity god accepts us where we are but he's he's making he's he's molding us more and more and more and more into the image of his son jesus so in the context of marriage who are we and the beauty of of the gospel is it doesn't change. There's not one description of who we are as a church and one description of who we are as individuals or, or in our marriage. It's the same. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 19, or Matthew chapter 28, we're going to look at gospel identity in the context of marriage for just a minute. In Matthew chapter 28, ver just one verse, let's look at verse 19 together. It says this, Therefore, go and make disciples. Can we just stop right there and say this? In, in Matthew 4, Mark 4, Jesus talks about calling um, 
the first disciples. He's bringing them in to become followers of his. And now he's sending them, he's commissioning them, empowering them to go and make other disciples. So can we just stop and say this first of all? The very first thing we are is disciples. We're disciples of Jesus Christ. I think I put a definition. Did I put it in the slides, a definition for a disciple? If I didn't, I'll just say it. I did not. Okay. It was a busy morning, I guess. Okay, so we are disciples. So here's, here's the definition. I want us to all be on the same page when we say disciple. A disciple is someone who has submitted their lives to the lordship of Jesus and is increasingly growing in knowledge and obedience of him. They are submitted to the lordship of Jesus and they are increasingly growing in knowledge and obedience of him. And so here's what I want you to see. Marriage, biblical marriage, there is a such thing, is two disciples who are submitted to the lordship of Jesus and increasing in their knowledge and obedience of Jesus. It's two disciples becoming one. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know if you spend any time here at Journey, we call that a baptismal identity or, or a gospel identity, that we are being baptized into God the Father, family, God the Son, servanthood, and God the Holy Spirit. We are being empowered by the Spirit of God to make much of Jesus. Acts 1.8. So what if our gospel identity consumed our marriage identity, right? Listen to this. What if we really saw each other as more than just a husband and wife? Because in reality, marriage is bigger than that. You are married to a son and a daughter of God. When you look your spouse in the eye, do you see a child of God? Now listen, we better be careful of what we say to our spouse. And we better be careful of what we do to our spouse. Parents, let me ask you a question. How do you feel when someone mistreats your kids? Righteous anger, right, begins to well up in you. So how much more does our heavenly Father feel when we mistreat our husband, our wife, his son, his daughter? Oh, be careful what you say. That's God's child. Be careful how you act. God's child. In John chapter 13, I want you to see this. This is text that we look at often. In John chapter 13, two verses, verse 34 says, Jesus is talking to his disciples. I'm giving you a brand new command. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Don't miss the language in the next verse, verse 35. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my what? The way we love our spouse will either prove to the world that we are his 
or we're not. So you can come to church and you can look all pretty. And you can get on stage and you can lead songs or you can sit out there and sing as loud. Man, you can, just, you can give all your money to the church. But Jesus says that your love, not your giving, not your worship, not the way you look, not even the things you say, your love for one another. And the standard is we are to love as we have been loved. For disciples, listen, for disciples, love is a command, not just a feeling or a choice. I want to chase a rabbit. Oh, don't, don't do it. Can I just give you a warning? I hate confrontation. It's probably not the best perk for a pastor because sometimes you need to get in people's faces. And I'm not that guy. But just a fair warning. If one more marriage breaks up in our church, and I hear this, don't I deserve to be happy? I'm going to slap you. And I'm going to give you permission. If you ever hear me say that about my wife, I want to be with her, but I deserve to be happy, so I'm going to go, would you slap me? That is the dumbest. Listen, for disciples, love is not about a feeling. Come on. I don't always feel in love. <laughs> right? I hope I'm not the only one, or if I'm, I'm in trouble this afternoon if I am. Is there anybody else in this room that, yeah, sometimes the feeling is just not so ooey-gooey. Most of the time it is, but sometimes it's not. Because love is not about a feeling. Love is not even about a choice. Love is a commitment. Really, it is a commitment to choose every day to love your spouse, whether they deserve it or not. I'm going to love them. Chip Ingram says marriage is an irrevocable commitment of unconditional love toward imperfect people. Let me say that again. Marriage is an irrevocable commitment of unconditional love toward an imperfect person. We should, listen, we should spend less time focusing on our spouse's imperfections and more time learning how to love them well through their imperfections and pray that they learn to love us better through our imperfections. We should, or Gary Chapman is a Christian author. I never read this book, but he has a book called The Five Love Languages. And uh, anyway, it came up in some of my studying this week and some of the things that I was reading. And, and so I didn't read the book, but I did a lot of research on it. And what, what is the five love languages? And well, again, I just didn't know much about it. And so as I was spending some time this week, one night I was sitting in my recliner. And my wife was sitting across the living room. And I said, hey, babe, real quick, have you ever heard of the five love languages? She goes, yeah. I'm like, really? What are they? There's five of them. And she listed them. And I want you to see her list. She'll kill me for this later. Uh, number one, Shopping. Number two, steak, word for word. Number three, shopping. Number four, Mexican. Number five, Cold Stone Creamery. That's why she has my heart. Right? Yeah, that's a word for word, her list. I'm like, baby, I love you. You do speak my language. No, that's not Gary Chapman's list, though. In fact, this next slide is his list. Here's the five love languages. Oh, it's on that same slide, just down one. Yep, quality time, giving gifts, 
act of service, act, acts of service, words of affirmation, and physical touch. Has anybody ever read that book? Yeah, okay, a few of you. So you know a lot more than I know about that. So here's what I want to say about these love languages. Uh, I want to give you some homework this week, and this is just a stepping stone, all right? This is just to get us going in this series. Um, I want you to go to fivelovelanguages.com, and I want you to take the five love language test. Here's the beauty of it. There's a test for marriages. There's a test for single people. There's a test for uh, teenagers, and there's a test for kids. We made, uh, me and my wife both took it this week, and there wasn't a lot of surprises. We kind of knew uh, that's where we was at, but we made our two oldest, our teenagers, take it last night. Because what a beautiful thing to know how they most feel loved, and maybe that will help us parent them better. And then we're going to have our kids take it later on so we can know them as well. But I'm just going to challenge you to go to that website this week and take that test. And then there's a paper back in the back. There's a handout. We want to give one per, per family. And it goes into a little bit of a description about each one of those five things. And so go take the test, and then if you want to take a paper, by the way, that website is on that piece of paper, so you can remember where it's at. Go take the test, look at what you are strong in, what you're weak in, look at that paper. It'll describe what to do and what not to do with your love languages. And uh, anyway, just have a conversation with one another. Take this paper. Um, study it, discuss it with one another, uh, because I, I want to continue by saying this. Loving one another, and we said this a while back in a series that we did called Reflections, loving one another really looks like serving one another, because words are just, they're cheap, right? I mean, how, how long would you believe your spouse really loves you if they just kept saying they loved you, but they never showed you that they loved you, that they never, so we, we talked about loving others looks like serving others. And so here's what I want to say to you. You are the chief servant to your spouse in human relating relationship at least. You are the chief servant to your spouse. When you become one, your primary responsibility in that human relationship is to serve one another. So what are the greatest needs of your spouse? Do you even know? What is the greatest needs of your spouse? Because you stood before them and you stood before God and you committed that you would be a chief servant and you would meet the needs of your husband or wife. Our church is governed by one rule we call it the gospel rule, which really means that our marriages are governed by the same rule. In John's gospel, chapter 13, verse 15, we know this. Jesus said, I have given you an example. Follow. Do as I have done to you. Question. What would it look like if we just applied that to our marriages? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 says, Imitate God there, therefore in everything you do because you are his dear children. What if our marriages, what if in our marriages we just began to imitate God to one another? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, God has called you to do good, even if it means suffering. <laughs> There's some marriage jokes there. Okay, God has called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 says, 
Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. What if we just took those verses that we use around here as the gospel rule verses and we just applied them to how we relate to our spouse because God expects that. God expects that, right? Because if we're saying we're going to go out here and serve one another, it, it has to start in the home. It doesn't start out on the street with the beggar. It starts with your spouse and it starts with your kids and it flows out of your home to the streets and to your workplaces and to the schools. Everything. Well, I'll say that in a moment. We love one another. We serve one another. We forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. You can go look at all of the, the gospel or the kingdom expressions that come from the gospel rule that we so often talk about around here. And what if we just took those expressions? What if we just took that one rule that I'm going to do for Andy what Jesus has done for me? And remember the rule? I only have to do for her what he's done for me. That's it. And if he stops doing for me, if God stops forgiving me through Jesus tomorrow, I can stop forgiving my wife tomorrow. But until then, if I am receiving from God, my spouse, according to God and Scripture, should be experiencing it through me. In the end, we're going to stand before God. And I know that this comes from a parable, a, a parable in the New Testament. But I grew up hearing a lot of songs talk about at the end when we stand before God. and He welcomes us into the kingdom of God. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful husband. Is that what he's going to say? Well done, good and faithful wife or mom or dad. You know, Scripture says, well done, good and faithful husband servant husband and wives we are the chief servants to our spouses doing for one another as Christ has done for us and you won't get bored with that there's over 59 one another commands in the New Testament just go study those and start asking the spirit to reveal to you how you can better serve your spouse the way God has served you through those one another commands. Amen? Will we hear good and faithful servant? And the third thing is we're baptized into the Holy Spirit, right? And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I don't know if I put that in there. It looks like I did it. Um, we're, we're studying this in our Acts series where it says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And there's a reason. You will be empowered to be witnesses. Well, what does that mean? Witnesses means this, telling people about Jesus everywhere. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ends of the earth. Let me ask you this. In context of marriage, do you see your spouse as Jerusalem? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling your spouse about me. Do you consider your spouse a mission field? You see, when you are married, when you are a married disciple, 
every verse of Scripture becomes a marriage verse. <laughs> right? Like, well, no, you have 1 Corinthians 1. This love, it's not really a marriage, but it's a, the love chapter, and people read it at their weddings. And they think there's this little section throughout the Scriptures that's the, it's the love passages or the marriage. No, no, no. When two disciples become one, every verse of Scripture becomes a verse of marriage. There is no command that God's going to give you that he doesn't want you to initiate first in your home with your spouse and your kids. How hypocritical would it be for us to become experts at loving all of those around us except for the people in our home? The ones God has called us to, the ones that we've made a holy covenant with. You are empowered by the Spirit of God to tell your spouse about Jesus. Colossians 3. Have you ever looked at this verse, Colossians, uh, these two verses? Have you ever looked at this through the lens of marriage? Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other. What? Could it be that Paul here is actually saying, hey, husbands, hey, wives, be rich in the message of Christ. So you can teach and counsel your spouse with wisdom, not your opinion. With wisdom. Sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. Look at the next verse. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We've read that verse, we've preached that verse, but have we ever considered that to our spouse, we are a representative of Jesus Christ. So ask yourself at the end of the day today, did you represent Jesus well to your husband or to your wife? And if you're here and you're an unbeliever, you can ask her, you, can't, you don't have to ask it. I don't care, and you don't even have to obey it because you're not under any kind of commitment. But for those who have made a covenant, when you have two disciples that have become one, inwardly our marriage should be maturing in faith through spiritual disciplines. We took a whole month of January to talk about spiritual disciplines. Again, have you ever considered this in the context of marriage? Do you pray together? Amy and my wife, we want to. We talk about it. We do it for a little bit, and then all of a sudden it just kind of falls off, and then we're like, oh, we need to pray together right? Is that awkward for anybody else? Or is it pray together? And how about study or read together? Maybe you don't necessarily need to read or study together, but what if you just talked about what God is teaching you, right? Matthew 28, or 20, right? Just talk about what God is teaching you and, and maybe preach to one another what God is teaching you. Let me, maybe memorizing scripture together. We've been doing one verse a week uh, as as a church or a passage, I think it goes out on Sunday nights if you see it on our Facebook page. This week, I think it's the Great Commission. Am I mistaken there? Matthew 28. And so what if this week you and your spouse just said, we're going to do this together? We're going we're gonna to memorize the, the Scripture together. The last four weeks have been just the Gospel rule verses that we just went over uh, a, a moment ago. Uh, if you need a, a, another help, what about, I, I recommended a, uh, a devotional that me and my wife are going to do over the month. It's 15 chapters, so you don't have to do it daily, but, but just make sure you get it in this month. It's called Gospel-Centered Marriage by Tim Chester. And you can, uh, I know there's a few families that ordered it, 
And, uh, and so we have it and a few others, and we're going to invite the rest of you to get it and just go through it over this month. Again, Tim Chester, Gospel-Centered Marriage, and maybe that's a starting point for you where you're just going to walk through that little devotional together. And not only inwardly should we be praying together and, and talking about the gospel and pointing each other to Jesus, um, pointing one another to Jesus together, but we need to be outwardly. Uh, our marriage should also be going on mission together. Uh, that might look like um, just, well, whose, whose lives are being impacted by, by your marriage? Impacted for the good. Impacted for Jesus uh, through your marriage. Um, man, we can start with our children. If you have children in your home, that's a good starting point, a place that you are called to teach and counsel and, and, and impact them with the gospel. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's neighbors that you've built a relationship with. Maybe it's co-workers or maybe just some close friends. Um, but you love and serve those people together as a husband and wife, maybe as a family. You, um, you comfort and you bless others together um, as, as a marriage. You choose to display and declare Jesus together. Be creative and be bold, but, but think of something to do. Just do something to reflect well. And we'll talk about that more in the weeks to come, that marriage is is really the purpose of marriage is to reflect Jesus in the church. And so we're going to get more into that. But I'm just going to challenge you. And I'll repeat something that I said last week, but I want to say it this week in the context of marriage. Uh, a marriage life is a life that is constantly doing one of two things. In our marriages, we are constantly rejoicing or repenting. Daily, we are rejoicing or repenting. We're rejoicing when our marriage is reflecting Jesus well, and we are repenting when our marriages aren't reflecting Jesus well. Can I quote Chip Ingram one more time? Chip says this, All of us want a great marriage, but very few of us will experience one. It's a powerful statement. Every, every man and woman who stands before God expects to have a great marriage. But when we don't do marriage God's way, we're never going to enjoy a great marriage. So church, let me just ask this. Because some of you have been married maybe longer than I've been alive, right? Why should we settle for less than great? Why shouldn't we strive for great? Let's do the work of creating a great marriage. And a great marriage is a gospel-centered marriage. It's a marriage where we see each other as sons and daughters of God and we treat one another accordingly. It's a marriage where we serve one another as Christ has served us in all areas. And it's a marriage where we are growing together as we are empowered. We are growing together in the Lord and we are working as a team to help others grow. The Great Commission, have you ever thought of the Great Commission in the context of marriage? Hey, Mitch, Casey. Hey, John, Michelle. Jay, Jillian. Go make disciples. You baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and you teach them. You teach them to obey all the things that I have taught you. And so I'm going to challenge you this week. Take one step, one tiny step in the right direction this week in your marriage. Here's a couple options. Have the love language conversation. Again, get a handout on your way out. Take the quiz this week. Discuss it. Um, Order the gospel-centered devotional book. 
commit to read that together over the next month. Um, just decide that there's one need that your spouse has that you're going to meet this week. It might be uh, that one project that they've been asking you to do for six months. And you're like, you don't have to tell me every six months. I will do it. Right? Maybe this is the week that you say, you know what? I'm going to serve. This is a need. Obviously, it's important to you. And so it's not to me, but I want it to be important to me because it's important to you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve you. Maybe just study your spouse this week. Learn something new about them. And then come and share it from the microphone next Sunday. I'm just kidding. Maybe this week you just pray together. Maybe you just ask, what's, what's the thing that's burdened you the most? What do we need to pray about? Let's pray together. Maybe invite someone into your home to have dinner. Maybe a neighbor. Maybe it's some, some friends and you're just going to invite them over and you're going to play games and you're just going to learn to love them and listen to their needs and you're going to serve them. And you're going to start the process of making disciples that love Jesus through the way that you love and serve them. Just identify, maybe it's this, identify an area in your marriage where you can rejoice. Maybe there's an area that you're really reflecting Jesus well. And so this time, this, this, take some time this week, maybe just rejoice as a couple. Let's thank God that he's helping us reflect him well here in this area of our marriage. Or maybe you need to spend some time in repentance. Maybe the Spirit will show you this week there's some places that you haven't been loving your, your wife or your husband. Maybe you haven't been as faithful as you should in some ways. Maybe, maybe the Spirit will show you, hey, you're not really reflecting Jesus well in this area of your marriage, and it's going to be an opportunity. It's going to be an opportunity for you to repent. Ask God to forgive you and give you strength and give you wisdom to, to know what it looks like to reflect Him well through your marriage. Do something. Take a step in the right direction. And then let's come back here next week and continue to unpack more of what a gospel-centered home looks like. Amen?